All right, well, we've made our way as far as Luke 8, and we are in verse 26. Let's pick it up there and read together. And then they sailed to a country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when Jesus saw, uh, he cried out and fell down. And, and I'm sorry, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. They have begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. And now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And then the demons came out of the man and and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. And when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding countries of the garrisons uh, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that He might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The title of my message this morning is, What God Has Done for You. As we continue through the Gospel of Luke here on Sunday morning, we are in a section where Luke is demonstrating the authority of Jesus Christ over certain aspects of our world. Last week we saw that Jesus Christ had the authority to calm the winds as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee. Today we see that not only does Jesus, of course, have authority over the natural world, but now we see him demonstrating clearly that he has authority over the supernatural world. And as a result, he appears to have an appointment scheduled for him in this region. Some of your translations, due to the manuscripts used in the translation, will say, uh, What's it? Um, uh, Gadarene, which means that this was the area that the tribe of Gad settled in, which means it would be a Jewish area. 
Other manuscripts have gerasin, which is the word that we see here in our translation, that would make it a Gentile region. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, That being said, this appointment that Jesus had to demonstrate his authority over the supernatural world was met by a man who was greatly demon-possessed. The demon who spoke from this man knew the true identity of Jesus Christ and addressed him as such. But Jesus was more concerned about the man tormented by these demons and restored this individual to his wholeness, to perfect health. We find here in our text that the authority of Jesus is boundless. That he was not subjected to supernatural or the natural world, that he was superior to both. And after this man was cleansed of these demons, he was then sent back into the city so he may tell all the city what Jesus, God, had done for him. Let us understand that in our culture today, the Bible is coming, becoming more and more scrutinized and criticized by our secular world. They continue to raise what I believe are faulty objections concerning the authority of Scripture, the authenticity of Scripture, the origination of Scripture, etc. But as a result, gaining traction in the secular world, fewer and fewer people are turning to the Bible looking for life, life's answers. I now believe that you and I may be the only Bible that a secular individual will read. Looking at our lives, as we demonstrate what God has done for us in and through our lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the manner in which we live out the scripture in which we say we believe. We will be, as Paul said, living epistles upon this world. It'll be us who represent Jesus and God to this world, and they will be either discouraged or attracted to God by the life in which we present. Now, I know that's a huge responsibility, and I know that our frailties keep us from doing it perfectly. But the grace of God, accompanied with the Word of God and the Spirit of God, will allow us to be the witnesses in which God has asked us to be to this world. This man's story was unique, for undoubtedly all in the city knew who he was due to the fact that they tried to contain him time and time again. They tried to restrain him so he probably would not hurt himself, and he would simply break the chains. He was expelled from the city, from his own home, and forced to live in a graveyard, a place, of course, eternal doom. And yet Jesus and his compassion had an appointment with this man. For this is the only man that the scriptures record in this area was healed by our Savior. Jesus wanted to demonstrate to his disciples not only what they could anticipate in the ministry in which they would fulfill after his ascension, but also see that Jesus Christ is boundless in his ability and and his strength and in his power. And so we pick it up in verse 26. As they cross the Sea of Galilee, if you were to look at a map, they are traveling from the east side to the west side of the 
Sea of Galilee. And depending on when the manuscript was written, the city name changed. That's why we have the discrepancy in the name of the city in which you might have in your Bible, depending on the manuscript that was used. However, though, if you trace it all back, you'll discover that it's speaking of all of the same area, just with different names at different times. However, though, once occupied by the Jewish tribe Gad, who chose to stay on that side, rather than proceeding further into the nation of Israel, if it was controlled by Jewish people, the idea of the pigs would have a significant uh, meaning to our text. If it was a Gentile farmer, then the Gentiles were not bound by the law, which uh, prohibited the Jews from farming and eating pigs due to the fact that pigs had hooves and that particular meat, pork, which we all enjoy today, I'm sure uh, bacon is a food group in and of America. Uh, that being said, at that time, God did prohibit the consumption of pork, undoubtedly due to the fact that pork had to be prepared properly or one could become gravely ill from it. So let us not get caught up on that uh, variant because I believe that we are speaking of the exact same area that Jesus traveled. Now, Luke writing this to Theophilus undoubtedly wanted to give Theophilus the current area in which it was so he knew where Jesus had traveled to. But when Jesus arrived and had stepped out on land, verse 27, there he met a man from a city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have we to do with what do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. This is the second time in the Gospel of Luke we find Jesus confronting an individual possessed by a demonic entity. Today, we have a tendency to downplay the reality of the spiritual world. Our society is gripped in what is called the worldview based on naturalism. Does that mean that our whole worldview is based on organic products? No, that's not what it means. Naturalism means that there's nothing else. Nothing else exists except the natural world around us. However, though, as believers in God, ones who hold to the authority of Scripture... We undoubtedly know that this physical reality is truly subjected to a spiritual reality because we believe in the existence of God who is spirit. Now God tells us through his word that there was a rebellion that took place in heaven and one of the angels fell whose name is Satan. And in his fall, Revelation tells us 
that one-third of the angels fell with him at that time. And as a result, those fallen angels are now the demons in which we experience throughout the New Testament. These fallen angels fulfill the ministry or the purpose or service of Satan to uh, kill, steal, and destroy to hinder the work of God in any way, shape, or form that they personally can. And as a result, we understand that the Bible clearly teaches that we have an adversary who himself goes around like a roaring lion, seeking in whom he may destroy Satan. But Satan also has his cohorts. The angels that fell with him, the demons in which we see and experience throughout the book of the Gospels and also Acts and into the book of Revelation. For the Bible calls these demons angels throughout the New Testament that have fallen, that have left their first abode. And as a result, we find that the Bible clearly teaches that demons are real. Well, that opens all kinds of questions to the thinker, doesn't it? Especially in a world that tells us that there is nothing more than the natural world that exists all around us. And as a result, we are now confronted with a series of questions that are often asked when it comes to the subject of demonology. I believe that when we talk about demonology, let us understand that this is one of the most uh, hyped up, sensationalized aspect of biblical thinking. And of course, we have the extremes. We have our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who no longer believe that demons are active and relevant in our Christian life. They no longer manifest themselves and will not again until the second coming of Jesus Christ, paralleling their opposition to his first coming that is recorded for us in the Bible. But then we have our other brothers and sisters on the opposite side of the spectrum who see demons under every rock, who find that every ailment is a byproduct of a demon oppression or some kind of involvement in the life of the individual. And I think that both are extremely unhealthy positions to hold to. As any other theological uh, subject, the Bible must be the basis of revelation and truth concerning that subject. So, as, if I may, the reason I say this is because the Bible gives us this promise. For all Scripture is breathed out, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. Breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, that is correction, for correction, which is a, a more subtle form of correction, and for the training in righteousness. Now, notice what Paul writes next that the man or woman of God may be complete, uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. I believe that God has graciously given us His Word that reveals to us not only who He is, 
but gives us the necessary information to understand the spiritual world properly from our limited physical perspective here on this earth. And therefore, if we travel outside of the Bible, we are then subjected to a personal experience which is therefore governed by the person rather than the authority of Scripture. And I think this is where it can become very, very troubling. For example, say you wanted to know about angels and demons. How would you go about studying that through the Bible? You would first, I would encourage you to find a concordance and find the words angel and demons all the way from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And I would read every verse in the Bible from Genesis all the way on to Revelation, and that would give you the perspective of what is known as biblical theology, the development of this subject throughout the Scripture. And put all of those verses in some type of list and begin to read that list to discover what God would have us to know about that subject. And then test everything that you would read outside of the Bible within the context of those verses. And you'll obtain a healthy, balanced perspective on the subject of demonology. Now Paul makes it also clear that not only can we rely on the Bible for the uh, insight into this spiritual world, but we can also be guaranteed that we are going to interact with this spiritual world as they oppose the work that God is trying to do in and through us. For Paul writes in Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil that are in heavenly places. He clearly tells us that this is where our real battle is taking place. It's not against flesh and blood, Paul says. It's not against people. It's against the spiritual influences behind those people. It is the individual who is pulling the strings behind those spiritual influences of those people. The ruler of this world, Satan himself. The Bible clearly tells us that. So let me take a minute to answer some of the common questions that we get today about demons, especially in light of the naturalistic world in which we live in today. And first and foremost, the question begins often with this, do demons exist and are they active today? I would say, yes, they exist. And yes, they are active today based on the scripture in which God gives us from the New Testament. The second question that Christians are often concerned about is this. Can a Christian be demonically possessed like the individual in our text today? Good question. The answer is no. Well, why is that, Pastor? Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit and Satan cannot reside in the same heart. In fact, with the omnipotent, omniscient Holy Spirit, 
there is no room for Satan whatsoever. What role does darkness have with light? We do not have one example through Scripture of a professed believer in Jesus Christ being possessed by a demon. So my answer to that, biblically, would be no. Now, does that mean that we don't interact with demons? Yes, we do. For Paul warned us very clearly that we do interact with demons because it is them that we wrestle against. And then Paul goes on to to describe for us how we can be victorious in that wrestling by giving us the whole armor of God which unfortunately I don't have time to get into today. I didn't want to make this all about demons, but more about the man who is relieved by Christ of these demons. But I needed to answer some of these questions, I believe, before we proceed and go further. The next question is one that is a little bit more complicated. How do demons manifest themselves today? Well, again, let's go back to the Bible. The Bible shows us clearly through the Gospels and Acts that the demons possessed an individual and manifested themselves through that individual. However, though, as you get farther on into the New Testament and we come to the book of Revelation, we find out that demons can manifest themselves apart from possessing an individual, appearing as locuses that are called demons and so forth. So we do have a spectrum of ability to the manner in which a demon may manifest itself within our society today. So then how do we know? Well, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you'll discover that one of the gifts of the Spirit is the spiritual gift of discernment. Here at Calvary Chapel, we believe that the spiritual gifts are still active in the body of Christ today but must be done decently and in order, and in the context of the manner in which they are meant to be exercised that the Scripture also gives us. But the spiritual gift of discernment was specifically for that purpose, to discern of what spirit something is of. John talks about this in 1 John. And so we can have a discerning spirit to help identify the manifestation of a demonic presence in our presence. And it is a gift that you can pray for and God gives it as we need it. So we have a varying degree of examples in how demons manifest themselves and that's part of the reason for the confusion today and the subjection of the personal experience But as we see, the Bible does allow for different manners in which demons can manifest themselves in our culture today. Well, then the question that many Christians will say, well, then how can I discern? How can I stand against this type of adversary? Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lists for us the whole armor of God, showing us that this is the armor that is required for us to wear to withstand each and every tactic, fiery dart, of the wicked one. And each component there is described and paralleled with an 
item on a Roman soldier, for Paul was in prison at this time, chained to a Roman guard. And as he is writing, he is using the description, he's looking at the Roman guard and saying, the helmet, the breastplate, the feet, the sword, the, the, the shield, etc. And he's writing that to us. And all of it's governed by prayer. The Word of God and prayer are two of our greatest weapons in this spiritual fight. I believe the reason that prayer is not often engaged in by the believer is because it is often the, 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 the uh, thing that is most resistant by the demonic world. But, saw, I'm sorry, but Paul saw that prayer was vital to are standing against the wilds of the devil. The subject is called spiritual warfare. It is a reality in the life of the Christian. Today, again, many have tried to naturalize the Bible and say that these things are no longer relevant, but we do not have scriptural authority to do so. It is an assumption we make on the current temperature of our society. And yet I believe that one of the greatest mistakes that we can make in this battle against these principalities and powers is by dismissing their existence. If we believe that they do not exist, we are giving them a blank check to run with. But if we approach it in a biblical manner, then I believe we will have a healthy perspective on the subject. Well, now comes to the last question. Can we get rid of these demonic activities? And the Bible would say, yes, we have authority, not in and of ourselves, but in, but in Christ. We have the authority in Christ to dismiss these spirits. Now, some will ask, well, isn't it some type of incantation or uh, incantation, excuse me, some kind of uh, ceremony, some kind of you know, special herb that we can only find when the moon is full and the, the, the frogs come out. Did anybody see this the other night, the invasion of the frogs? We were driving home from Bible study Wednesday, and I kept hearing the, my car hitting these things. I'm like, what is going on? And there were all these frogs. I thought, oh, we're in the last days for sure. Uh, it was a, it was gross. It was kind of gross, you know. It's like you just have these frogs, and they see your headlights. They're just like, it's like hit me, please, you know. And you try not to, and you're swerving. It was literally like Frogger, you know, but it was opposite, you know. It's trying to go all the way around. Frogger, that was an old game that you had to put quarters into, maybe before some of your time. The Bible gives us no such su suggestion that any of those things are needed to deal with these spirits. There are those who are fascinated with extra-biblical writings, and I want to talk about just briefly, if I may, this morning. Extra-biblical writings are writings concerning the Bible that were either 1st, 2nd, or 3rd century, or written along this, in the same time frame that that particular book of the Bible was written, that scholars use as a reference to gain insight, to possibly derive you know, understanding of Greek and Hebrew words that are no longer existing today, and so forth. 
And unfortunately, and I knew this was going to happen, this is from the 90s on, a book written by a man named Norman Geisler who just went home to be with the Lord. I, he, was one of, he had a huge impact on my life. Uh, wonderful man, taught up at uh, Trinity here in Deerfield. Uh, Norman Geisler wrote a book called The Jesus Crisis. If you have the opportunity, please read it. Uh, this was back in the 90s, and it was prophetic on the abandonment of Scripture and looking to extra-biblical sources for theological doctrine. The Bible is the only aspect of the inspired, uh, God-breathed Word in which He's given us for the revelation. All these extra things can be uh, referenced and looked at, but they should not be used to dictate doctrine to us because they were not inspired by God. Now, one of those is a text that we have concerning Solomon and the great wisdom that we, uh, he had been given by God that, that came about stating that in the conception of the wisdom that he was given by God, he was also given the understanding of how to deal with demonic forces. And again, this is an extra biblical uh, writing that people are gravitating to today in this subject because in it, it lists different incantations and techniques and rituals and spells and potions and various kinds of rings of magical objects, etc. to ward off demonic activity. Two problems I have with this. First of all, this document written concerning Solomon was written in the first to second century, way after the life of Solomon himself. Second problem with this. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 18, if you will. We go back to the nation of Israel entering into their promised land, and I want you to read this with me. Because in chapter 18, along with the promise of the coming Messiah... In verses 9 uh, to 14, I want you to read these verses with me. Deuteronomy chapter 18. If you hit Revelation, you've gone too far. Back up. Now listen with me to these words and read along if you can. Verse 9. This is God speaking to His people. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not, notice that, learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. Well, what are those practices that we are not supposed to follow and that you consider abominable before you? There shall, be, uh, there shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices oh, divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a, a necromancer, excuse me, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of the abomination, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. That's the reason they're getting judged. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for... For these nations which you are about to dispose, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners, 
But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now I want you to notice that. These things and their practices are prohibited to the Jewish people. So why then would God give Solomon wisdom to cast out demons along these particular prescribed manners? He wouldn't, would he? It's a contradiction. In fact, the Old Testament is almost silent on this subject. But when we get to the New Testament, and when we realize the new covenant that we have with God through Christ Jesus, when we understand the role of the Holy Spirit within our lives, the authority that He brings to our lives in Christ, knowing that we have the Word of God, we don't need incantations, we do not need spells we do not need to become uh, diviners we don't need to uh, do these types of practices to expel these demons we simply have to command in the authority of christ these things that's what paul did that's what peter did and i believe for you and i that is all the authority that we need because our dad is bigger than their dad. And that's all there is to it. I'm not giving these demons any more credit than they're worth, right? Now notice that Jesus Christ, back in our text, verse 28, they declare that He is the, most, the Son of the Most High God, which is so interesting to me, They had intellectual knowledge of who he was and his true identity, and obviously they were not saved. This is exactly what James says when he writes in James 2.19. He says that you believe that God is one, you do well, for even the demons believe and shudder. It's not enough to have simple intellectual knowledge of God. God's looking to have a relationship with you through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. When he asks those to depart from him, when they stand before him, he says to them, yes, you've done all of these things, but depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, because I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. These demons knew exactly who Jesus was and declared that before them all. They even knew the authority that he had over them. He says, I beg you, do not torment me. That's the demon saying that to Jesus. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it seized him, and he was under the guard, uh, under kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. It appears that those who are possessed will think irrationally. They will do things that are beyond their natural ability. Breaking chains, obviously, is part of that. We know that some demons try to throw the individuals in whom they possessed into fire and water to kill and to drown them. The Bible tells us that. The demonic entity is not your friend. He is here to destroy and to kill and to hinder all that God would have for you. And this individual would be even driven into the desert 
by the demon within him. And Jesus asked him in verse 30, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. A legion is a term that is used in the Greek to describe the legion of the Roman Empire, which was about 6,000 men. We don't know if there were 6,000 demons within him, but we know that the demons that were in him were many. In the early 1900s, our Pentecostal brothers and sisters began to teach that in the exorcism of a demon, once you knew their name, you had control over them based on this particular passage. Now, Please understand that Jesus knew exactly what was going on before him. He did not need this revelation. It was not for his sake, but for those around him. He also wanted them to know that a multiple possession could be possible. That there, would be, there could be more than one demon within a person. And that is the case here. I frankly, if I'm coming face to face with someone who is demon possessed, the last thing I care about is the demon's name but just depart. Get out of here. You have no authority here. But they say legion here. For many demons had entered him. Now notice verse 31, very interesting. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. This is so fascinating. Demons do not have the same characteristics. Satan does not have the same characteristics that God has. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at the, at the same time. He is not uh, omniscient. He doesn't know all things like God knows all things. He is not you know, omnipotent. He cannot do all things like God can do all things. And of course, demons likewise uh, lack in these abilities also. And yet, they talk about this removal and this sentence to the abyss, the bottomless pit. It is interesting to me that the demons appear to know their fate. For we see in the book of Revelation, this pit brought up once again in Revelation 21 through 3, where Satan and the false prophet will be thrown into the bottomless pit. Second uh, Peter 2.4, interesting verse, talks about hell, but uses a very unique word, the word TARDIS, which means a depth of hell, a lower point in hell. We also have in Jude 6, this reference to a bottomless pit where angels are chained due to their disobedience. In either case, we see that the Bible clearly teaches the ultimate demise of the demonic forces, including their leader, Satan himself, who will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They knew that their time was limited. They knew that their sentence was already etched in stone, And yet they begged Jesus at this moment not to send them to that place as of yet. Interesting to me. So Jesus, appearing to be merciful, noticed a large herd of pigs that were 
feeding there on the hillside. Now, if these were Jewish individuals, they should not have pigs. This was something that was forbidden to them due to the fact that pork was a forbidden food for them through the Mosaic Covenant. If these were Gentiles, then they, of course, were not subjected to that law. But either way, Jesus took these demons and cast them into the pigs. And I should say, they begged to be put into these pigs. So he gave them permission. Do you see the authority that Luke is stressing in each and every account here with this demon? Please do not send us here. Please give us permission to go into the pigs. Please. Thank you. Who's in charge here? Jesus, right? Who's in, who's in charge? Jesus. Hey, amen, man. We got none to fear. Jesus. And so they possessed these pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Now, if this was a Jewish farm, Jesus was simply correcting a, uh, a disobedience to the law. If this was a Gentile farm, well, they just lost their herd of pigs. I had a friend who I went to school with uh, when I was training to become a pastor, and he said that if he ever had a chance to do his doctorate, he wanted to do his doctorate on the perspective of the pigs being possessed just one day, casually grazing throughout the field, and then next thing you know, I'm running towards the lake, I can't stop, what is this all about? I'm dead. I told him I'd read it, you know. There'd be all two of us. His mom probably would read it too. Um, But notice here in verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, oh my goodness, when they saw what had happened, They fled and told it in the city and in the country. And then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus. Notice here, he's clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. What a beautiful picture. This man who had nothing, constantly tormented by the demons within him. And we don't know how the demons possessed him. And, you know, let us not speculate. You know, it's not that he went and played on a Ouija board or anything, and we don't have any of that. But he was possessed to this point where he lost everything. He ran around naked, losing his dignity. He was expelled from his home, losing his family. He stood out in the graveyard alone and by himself, constantly reminded of his perpetual death, being tormented by these demons. Bound in chains, never knowing and experiencing freedoms due to the possession of the demons within him. He is now sitting at the feet of Jesus, The word sitting there is a word that is used in the Greek that also brings with it a sense of peace, calm, a sense of reverence and awe to what has happened. His dignity returned now that they've clothed him. And instead of being isolated and rejected by people, he is now with them, interacting with them, 
in his right mind. That phrase there, in his right mind, is one that also has caused some to speculate and to conclude some very concerning things about demon possession and its relationship with mental illness. The term in the Greek means to be able to reason and to think properly and in a sane manner. To be in one's right mind is the best English translation that we have, but to be sane or to think straight or to reason correctly would also be equally appropriate for the Greek word. Today there are many Christians who hold to the idea that every incidence of mental illness is due to demonic possession. There are others who don't believe that any mental illness is derived from demonic activity. Here is where I think we need to be very careful and not assume something or to take an extreme position on one sense or the other. But I'd like to answer this by quoting C.S. Lewis, if I may. There are two equal and opposite errors in which our race can fall above de- about devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, that is the demons, by both errors and hail a materialist that one who is a naturalist or a magician who sees a demon in everything. They held these individuals, hold these individuals in the same delight. I do not believe that every case of mental illness is derived from demonic activity. But I am not saying that I believe that every case of mental illness is absent from demonic influence. I do believe that we have cases today that we have deemed mental illness due to our natural understanding and our limited perception in psychiatry and psychology that are the manifestation of demonic activity. In fact, if you go online, you will find that a Harvard professor has now stated that there has to be a further explanation to the vast array of mental illness than simply physiological chemical imbalance. When we are dealing with a mental illness due to physiological chemical imbalance, we see a natural reason for the thinking in which it is occurring. It is apart from that natural occurrence of the irrational thinking that I think we should maybe be concerned. Is it possible that those things that cannot be explained by the natural world by reason of elimination then should be considered possibly a effect of the supernatural world? I want to be careful on this subject. Because I don't want us to leave thinking that every person that has a mental illness of some sort is demonically uh, possessed. At the same time, let us not be naive to think that demons cannot possess and demonstrate and manifest themselves in these type of occurrences. Because we have biblical examples of when such a thing has occurred. 
In fact, we have one biblical example that the individual manifested the fact that it appeared that he had epilepsy when in actuality it was a demon. But does that mean that every case of epilepsy is due to demonic possession? No, this is where the balance must occur. But let us not be naive as C.S. Lewis warns us to say that there is none on either side or to completely discredit one or to see it uh, everywhere on the other occurrence. He went on to say that like any good chess player, Satan is always trying to maneuver you into a position where you can save your castle only by losing your bishop. I love that phrase. Because he's saying that we are willing to abandon scriptural doctrine for the secular philosophies of our current culture. He is saying here the same thing Paul said where he clearly told us in Colossians, let us not be robbed by the philosophies of this world which are a product of the elementary spirits of this world. That's interesting too. So we cannot negate the possibility in certain occasions of a demonic activity in the life of an individual who may be diagnosed with mental illness. Notice with me in verse 36 as we conclude. In his right mind they were afraid. But in verse 36, and those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. That is also for the words made whole, saved, delivered from the possession of these demons. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them and they were seized with great fear. So he got into a boat and returned. And the man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Now return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Please know that Luke did not miswrite by using God in one reference and Jesus in the other. It is a statement of deity. God's calling to confirm. It's a statement of deity. It is a statement that uh, reaffirms that the fact that Jesus is God and has this authority over this world, the supernatural world. How much can you tell others about what God has done in your life? Each of you have a unique story. Now, not all of us will, of course, parallel this man's story about being possessed by a legion of demons. But that's not the point. The point is is that God did in your life what was needed to bring you to him, to save you from your sin. Jesus Christ told this man to go into the city and say, tell them your story. Tell them what I had done on your behalf. Use it as a manner to share with everyone in the city the goodness of God, the greatness of God, the grace of God. 
Let them know and see in and through your life all that God has done. Because you and I would like to walk away from this story and possibly dismiss it and say, well, I've never been demon-possessed, and so I really cannot relate to what is happening here, but I'm grateful for it, and I'm grateful for the authority in which Christ demonstrated and the promises that He has given us, and that is to continue in the power that He has demonstrated through the Holy Spirit. But we are more like this man than you would like to believe that we were. Before we came to Christ, we were very similar to this man. For the Bible says that before an individual comes to the authority of Jesus Christ and, the, and repents and believes and becomes a citizen of the kingdom of God, they are under the sway of the wicked one, the ruler of this world. Satan has created a world system to tempt us in every areas of our flesh to draw us away from God into the world system in which he has created. We want to believe that we're free and independent of any kind of, uh, of, of, of bondage to anything when we are apart from God, but yet we are in the greatest bondage that we possibly could find ourselves. We're alone. It is amazing to me that this world is crying out each and every day in one of the greatest uh, aspects of counseling that is being addressed today in our society is loneliness. This man was alone. He was by himself, in bondage. He was blinded by the possession in which occurred in his life as we were once blinded by the ruler of this world, not thinking clearly, not seeing clearly. When I became a Christian, it was like blinders were being taken off and I could see things in a brand new light through the scriptures of God. We want to believe that we were alive before we came to Jesus Christ, but in actuality, we were merely surviving day by day. And though we don't live physically in graveyards, as we walk and interact with others apart from Jesus Christ, it's like we're in one of those zombie movies, man. We're one of many zombies walking around with a bunch of others. Blind, lifeless, clueless to the realities of God. We were dead and didn't even realize it, though we were living each and every day spiritually, we were dead inside. And all of this brought us to a state of complete and utter hopelessness and should have cried in our heart our need for a Savior. This man knew that he was in need of a Savior. The demons did not allow that to take place. They hindered him from coming to Christ. So Christ came to him as he has come to us. And he reached out to us and saved us. We could not save ourselves in any way, shape, or form. So before we just dismiss this, let us understand that those loved ones who we care dearly about are in this state if they do not know Christ. Let us understand that they, have, they are in a hopelessness apart from Christ that only Christ can alleviate them of. This generation coming up now has been called the hopeless generation. Interesting. We went from generation Z to the hopeless generation. That's the secular 
labeling of our current uh, generation coming up. Hopeless. Isn't it amazing the farther that we push God away from us socially and individually, the more hopeless we become. Because with Jesus Christ, there is always reason to find hope in Him.